three, two, one. Ah, uh, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the uh, bottle in, like, the best French champagne. It's vintage dated. Hi, <laughs> this is Sardonicast. I'm Adam from Your Movie Sucks. <laughs> I'm Ralph from Ralph the Movie Maker. <laughs> Sorry, you, you cut off. You, you cut off for a second. <laughs> uh, sorry. And we got a special guest here. How you doing? This is this is Matt Johnson, uh, a huge fan of Paul Masson. <laughs> and uh, that was actually, believe it or not, my introduction to Orson Welles when I was a kid. Yeah. Not from that exact uh, meme, but from Pinky and the Brain doing it on Animaniacs. And I remember seeing that as a kid. <laughs> oh, they did a parody? The, uh, he, well, it was, it was literally my introduction to Orson Welles. Wow. And it was so profound to me because I thought, this is... There's something to this, and I just couldn't explain it. It had this kind of numinal power, and I was like, God, what is this? And then from then on, it's been a love affair ever since. But of course, the brain is more or less a, a Norson Wells caricature, so, mm-hmm. so I, I should have known. Oh, that's great. Uh, so for anybody in the audience who's unfamiliar with your work, uh, what would you say you do? I would say I'm a Toronto filmmaker who uh, makes movies and TV shows that are trying to make the audience guess what is real and what is fake and taking that to, well, I I would say as far as we legally can Mm -hmm. um, uh, in in everything that we do. In the same vein as uh, kind of Borat and Bruno, in a way, not completely, but in the same vein in ways uh, where you get (laughs) real people's reactions, but it's not necessarily just about the reaction sometimes about like uh deciding where the plot goes based on where reality takes you sort of thing yeah we try to set movies or to basically try to set stories in the real world except not in a in like a goofy way and not like in a pretentious way like actually take the characters in your movie and have them go through the plot with real people who don't know they're in a movie around you yeah and for some reason it it leads to crazy results that i that as we're finding right now are often difficult to explain so Nirvana the band the show is my favorite thing that you've made. I love it. It's it's very very rare for me to actually be excited about seeing new episodes of of a TV show. And yes. I'm sure you've We've been asked this to death, mm-hmm. but what is the situation on season 3 currently? Has anything changed? <laughs> you know what? Weirdly things it's one of those slow moving glaciers where it seems as though nothing is ever changing because for those who don't know, we, we had a show that was being made in Toronto by Vice Canada mm-hmm. uh, up until 2018 or maybe late 2017. Actually, I don't even know. Um, and we had a deal to make three seasons of this show. And it seemed as though to us, we were going to be making much more. Um, and then out of nowhere, Vice Canada got shut down. Yeah, <laughs> And so it was the strangest situation for us where our it's not like our... Um, like our show had been taken off the air. It was like our network was taken off the air. And it was so strange because we had an unresolved contract. And so we were trying to figure out how to navigate that and whether or not we would move just to Vice US, like the New York office. And the conversation to try to untangle all of the things that would happen has taken forever. Yeah, <laughs> And it's been a legal conversation with, with them. And there appears to be some light at the end of the tunnel but in terms of getting the episodes that we've already made, 
like because we finished shooting a great deal of of uh of season three Mm -hmm. and when we found out that we weren't coming back we started going out and shooting on our own to finish season three which we did with our with our team before it all kind of got disbanded but the release plan for them is mired in this same legal back and forth uh with vice which hasn't been like totally negative it's not like these people are complete villains mm-hmm. who are just holding it over us and being like you can never have it back it's just that everybody who we worked with has been fired yeah right the entire office is gone <laughs> and so it's like we're trying to rebuild the bureaucracy in order for us to even ask the questions that we need that's very bizarre of course well it, it's it's like being in a charlie kaufman movie but <laughs> you it's actually it's it's a lot like the beginning of uh of i heart huckabees with jason Schwartzman running through those hallways trying to get to that one office that's very much what it feels like but i am still optimistic that well look i know for a fact that the the episodes that we shot are going to be seen um it's just mm-hmm. when and how that i that i don't have a totally clear answer on so everything's been shot then Ye- pretty much right? well well, you, you know how we work. Yes, I'll say everything's been shot. Like we have everything that we need to to release uh, season three. It's not all put together yet, mm-hmm. but in the process of releasing it, I'm sure we're going to want to change something or I'm going to see something and be like, oh, we should reshoot this. But that's the yeah. kind of thing we'd be doing. <laughs> Just, anyway. Your character ages by five years. Well, you know what? <laughs> for, even Evil even in the style. dirties, you'll yeah. It's it, it, for some reason people. I don't think they're watching it for the visual continuity of my haircuts. <laughs> that's that's for sure. <laughs> um, but it will it, hopefully, and like when I say like sometime soon, we'll be able to announce something. But again, it's it, it's uh, a, a a slow moving glacier. Yeah, you know, as as much as that sucks, I don't think people really realize just how awesome it was that you got greenlit for three seasons in the first place before even really doing like Mm. before even really having like a successful show uh, on the network we hadn't even released we hadn't even released an episode and we thought that our show was gonna be like a total disaster because vice wasn't making anything like it and we brought the first finished episode that we had into their toronto office to show spike jones who was there basically judging all of the Canadian shows and being like, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks. And we were going there asking for, I think we needed like an extra $50,000 or something to finish season one. And we were so scared. And they said, well, you have to show an episode if you're going to ask for anything. And we showed this, this like half of that episode or maybe the whole episode. And we left with a, with a contract for three seasons, which again, you're right. It's amazing. We were able to make that show yeah, in the first place. That never I don't happens. think that <laughs> even just the way we were making the show generally in terms of what we were doing in terms of the law, I think should never have been, <laughs> well, I'm not going to say it should never have happened, but it's the type of thing that never, ever happened. So I, it's the reason why I have such a, so many good things to say about vice really, because it's easy to think, oh yeah, we got screwed and now nobody can see the third season. And there's like this huge long waiting period because of it. But these are the same people who gave us the opportunity to make the show in the first place. So without them, we wouldn't have been able to do all that insane shit. So I can't, I I can't separate them from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. I, um, I've got a few more questions for you. I was wondering, uh, Alex or Ralph, if you wanted to jump in or not. Yeah, Alex, you have one. Yeah, based on, um, you already explaining how you love this kind of mix of the traditional filmmaking with the documentary side, when the improv side of it. Um, I'm really interested in how you built up that skill in in order to perform in these public places 
with this craziness going on around you? Is it just, does it just come to you naturally, or is it just the events kind of dictate themselves, or is it a skill you've built up over years? I'm curious. I bet you anybody who who is put in these situations would probably say the same thing, and it's that <laughs> really. Yes, and I and I'm not trying to compare myself to other people who do this kind of thing, but much like someone like Eric Andre or Sasha Baron Cohen or anybody who has to perform in the real world, I think it actually makes it easier. I feel like when you're mm-hmm. when you're doing this, you mm-hmm. feel like you're wearing a mask and you feel like you can say and do anything that you couldn't normally do because psychologically you have the excuse that you have to do it for the show. And that makes it so that your, your apprehension or your shyness, because in reality, I'm fairly shy. And it's not like I love being in states of conflict with complete strangers. Um, <laughs> and, I don't, and I don't like making fe- people feel uncomfortable either. Like I really, it, it gives me a huge amount of anxiety. But, <laughs> but because you're forced to do it, because that's what your, your context is, is dictating, it actually makes it totally painless. And Jay and I talk about this. Jay's the other guy in the, in the show. Talk about it all the time where it's, if we're out in public and we have to do something, like we have to, let's say, sneak into a movie or something like that, it, and we're not shooting the show, it's really anxiety provoking. And it's like, oh God, oh, no, we can't do it. Then we won't do it. Whereas if we were shooting the show and the episode was Matt and Jay sneak into a movie, we'd be like, yeah, no problem. Easy. Yeah. And we'd do it like 10 times in a row. And we'd be like, did we get it? And people would maybe come up to us and be like, are you sneaking into this movie? And we'd be able to talk with them easily. And it would be... It would be so easy because we would feel as though we had an excuse. And the, the step further is that oftentimes when we would do something really, really bad, like when we stole that exhibit from the museum and, and more or less got <laughs> chased out by the police, we did stop and say, oh, we're doing this for a show. And then everybody was, at least in that, in that <laughs> one moment, everybody was cool with it. Yeah. They were like, oh, okay. And so it's like we kind of knew in the back of our heads that once people knew that we were doing this for like an innocent enough comedy <laughs> series, they'd be like, okay, no problem. Because at the end of the day, it's not like we were like, you know, throwing slime on people or pulling fake guns yeah. on people. And, and yeah. like, we're not, trying to, we're not trying to put people in a bad light or make them feel ugly or stupid. In fact, we're trying to get people to behave exactly the way that they would normally. It, it, I mean, not to tie it to the, to the film that we're talking about today, F for Fake, but mm-hmm. very similar to the way that Orson Welles was trying to get people to behave in this film, especially with that lady watching sequence where it's like, I mean, it, you, you, if you've made a movie before, you'll know one of the hardest things to do is to get human behavior right. Yeah. It's why actors get, get paid millions and millions of dollars, right? Because human beings are all an expert at detecting real or fake human behavior they're experts mm-hmm. at it even when it's like subtle too like that walking in synecdoche new york <laughs> you're not walking right amazing example yeah. it's an amazing example and it's and it's so deeply true because it's like we know when someone's not acting like a human being and so the best way to make it so that people act like perfect humans is don't tell them they're acting have them play themselves right like everybody in the world could win an oscar at playing themselves if they didn't know that they were acting. Everybody mm-hmm. could. Yeah. Because yeah. You, it's a flawless performance. Who was the director that said anyone can act as long as they're given the right character? I, I don't remember who said that, but that's a quote that really resonated with me, where it's like, if you can write someone to play essentially themselves and get them to act how they would be acting anyway, then that you know that, that's something that can translate well to the screen. And if someone's doing a poor performance, most of the time it's because they're trying to act like someone they're not. In a way, 
and and it takes this another second for them to come up with everything that they're going to say. It's it's why really great actors are so amazing. Oh yeah, they don't have to. They, they, they it happens instantaneously. In fact, Orson Welles has that quote where he says, "My best role is myself," mm-hmm. and it's completely true. Like he's so good at playing himself in this movie. Mm-hmm. He's playing himself on all those. Ra- that's why he was so good in radio. Mm-hmm. It's basically him talking into a mic, playing himself. Uh, it's why I never play somebody not named Matt Johnson, <laughs> like acting like a crazy pitching idiot, right? It's like I'm always trying to be in a space where I'm totally comfortable and I'm going to know the answers because it's just me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes tons of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, my, my favorite actors are definitely character actors, ones where it's like you're, cha- you're literally transforming yourself in every role, like Joaquin Phoenix or Tilda Swinton. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the most impressive performances for me. I like, uh, oh, who's the girl in Titanic? And then she plays the... Kate Winslet? Kate Winslet. I love yeah. Kate Winslet. Daniel Day-Lewis, too. Yeah. It's, it's, like they're, it's like they're magicians, eh? It's so funny. Yeah. It's like, I think people <laughs> have a real issue with the star system or feel like celebrities or celebrity actors are sort of ridiculous, but... Like the really great ones are like you do that. You go yeah. and be John C. Riley. Like, mm-hmm. are you kidding me? They deserve mm-hmm. all the credit they get. These people are wizards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Especially if you're working within limited talent pools trying to find people that can act. And <laughs> it's slim pickings sometimes. Well, welcome to the Canadian uh, film world. And yeah. in many ways, like any any country outside of Britain and the United States it's one of the reasons that international film has such a struggle trying to break out because we just don't have the same it's we don't even have the same training system for getting actors to mm-hmm. that place and that's a whole other conversation i i think we should avoid it sure. too dark too dark <laughs> um ralph did you have any questions for matt before i ask yeah I, I did so nirvana the band the show is hilarious but there's this whole like parody angle to it and i want to ask you about fair use because it's this gray line where you mm-hmm. don't really know what's acceptable until you try it and like everyone discusses it. And Nirvana the Band the show has like these excellent like parody openings. Like one of them was like Daredevil, the the Netflix show, and it's really funny. And I like how what do you consider parody and like how do you even come up with it? That stuff. It was easy to come up with that stuff because when we first started making the show and when it was a web series before, like when I just gotten out of film school, I had become so like sick of the idea that you couldn't do that stuff because in film school, if you've ever been, mm-hmm. like they drive into your head what you're not allowed to do. Uh, specifically, you're not allowed to shoot without permits. You're not allowed to use any copywritten material, not allowed to use any copywritten music. Hide the logos on the water bottle. Yeah. Oh, it's awful. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, so limiting. Yeah. And make up fake companies for things like that. And you can understand from a legal point of view why they do that. Yeah. But yeah. for me as like, uh, you could almost say like a, a stupidly rebellious like 20-year-old, I was like, oh, I'm just going to make something that that does the exact opposite of all the things that my stupid film professors told me to do and do it for no other reason than that they said not to do it. <laughs> and so that very much was the <laughs> impetus for doing it, which led to making The Dirties, which was sort of a celebration of that same type of ethos. And then when we started making Nirvana the Band, the television series, it was like, how can we use parody and use all this copywritten material to show what is going on in the inner lives of these characters 
and show the things that they care about without them needing to talk about it. Like by having a daredevil opening, I think, well, community did this so well. I mean, I consider yeah. Dan Harmon to be like one of the masters mm-hmm. of this, but by showing parody opening sequences or by having entire episodes that are based on say Mrs. Doubtfire, you get, oh, these characters are obsessed with this stuff mm-hmm. without them needing to say, I am obsessed with it, right? Like the way the Big Bang Theory would just be like, oh, I love Mrs. Doubtfire. And that would, <laughs> they, they, they would play a, a, like the laugh track over that line, By Zinger. right? It's, it's, yeah, it's like the opposite mm-hmm. of that where it feels lived in and it feels like these characters really are getting their cues from this North American supply of media. Mm-hmm. And so that's where it came from. Yeah. Um, and, and luckily – our lawyers, who we've been working with this stuff on from the very beginning, use that as the reason why we're allowed to do it because it's informing character and informing story and there is no other way for us to tell that exact mm-hmm. story. And mm-hmm. if there are any filmmakers listening, like that more or less is the secret to fair use. Um, don't quote me. Uh, it has to be justified. Yeah, it needs, yeah. To, it needs to be justified from the point of view of your story. So a great question to ask yourself is, you're making a parody of, let's say, the show Lost. Could this be any show? Like, what specifically about Lost is it that you're taking from this? And if you have meaningful answers where it actually did need to be Lost, or it did need to be like the X-Men animated series, or it did need to be this particular episode of Star Trek TNG, you can really get away with quite a bit, so long as you're not like just abusing and overstaying your welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, but the laws are very, very sympathetic to artists, mm-hmm. as they should be, as they should be. Mm-hmm. I remember a while ago, uh, you were you were telling me about uh, the Criterion posters throughout the uh, <laughs> set on Nirvana, the band, the show, um, and I think you said something along the lines of, of they just gave them to you and let you use them. They, they did. <laughs> How did it that come It was ridiculous, about? and I'll tell you exactly what happened. We were we had all, a bunch of sort of Criterion p- poster ideas that we had. I had a bunch of posters like that in the old web series, but they were Mm -hmm. just posters that I had. And then maybe it was Adam Belanger, our art director, or maybe one of the writers who had suggested that we just fill an entire wall with these posters. And it just so happened that someone at Vice knew the people who ran Criterion. And so we got to send an email directly to them telling them what we were going to do, where we were like, okay, we have these characters who are more or less obsessed with this style of filmmaking along with uh, movies from the 90s. And they were like, oh, okay, great. And then all of a sudden we got this huge package of just everything. They sent us digital files of all those posters Mm -hmm. and then a whole bunch of full prints. And they were just like, yeah, go ahead and use them. And they sent us a signed contract that said we could use them in the show. And so that's one of the few times where we didn't have a fair use case. I mean, I'm sure we could have got one, but we didn't need it because we asked and they just said, no problem. Wow. Hmm. That's awesome. That is good, yeah. So you're filming a new movie, and I want to ask you a bit. Uh, w- just just tell us whatever you can tell us about the movie, but also I want to know uh, how has the uh, pandemic affected your filming? I think you said you're catching up on editing or something. Yeah, yeah actually, I was catching up on uh, writing because oh, yeah? we had just finished the pilot to a new television series. Actually, that I should well. Maybe I'll send it to you, uh, but I can't talk about it. It's still top okay. secret. Um, but we'd uh, we just finished the pilot to a new series, and we were about to go into pre-production at some level on it. It's a different kind of show. It's a game show that um, that uses real people, but that's, that's all I'm going to say about it. Mm-hmm. And then the pandemic hit, and we were like, oh, my God, this is so bad. 
we're, we're like we're completely mm-hmm. fucked. But then everybody kind of got completely fucked. So it was like, okay, maybe this isn't such a problem. Yeah. But the other thing we were about to start making was this other movie, and that's also about something top secret. Sure. Oh man. Well, I can. I can. I'll, I'll, again, I'll tell you guys once this is <laughs> Whatever. done. Yeah, just yeah, because yeah. that's something. That's something that's like very yeah. legally. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, like dangerous. Like we can't. We can't. I can't tell anybody what it's about because uh, the people getting who it's people about would be like. Yeah. Well, you'll love it. I'll, I'll tell you that much. Um, uh, the other movie that we were just in Germany doing pre-production on was that was that movie about the time machines that the Nazis built um, that then the Allies discover and try to use to send somebody back to kill Hitler. Mm-hmm. That was like a big action movie that had been in pre-production on for like two and a half, three years. And we had just gotten back from Germany before I saw you actually at TIFF. Mm-hmm. And that also is on hiatus until we figure out uh, what the world is going to be like. The good news is that this type of the type of shooting that we do with very small crews, typically in the real world, works quite well even in this in this pandemic society. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to have to see. It's it's very unclear what uh, what people will and won't except yeah. in terms of behavior in public. <laughs> yeah. I know that we, there was a lot of there was a lot of pressure on us to try to shoot a covid episode of Nirvana the band and there were lots of good ideas for how to do it but there's something about going out and talking with people on camera where I just I don't know if we can cross that line quite yet. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see I guess. Hopefully things get better sooner rather than later. Probably not going to be a tiff this year. Dude, I really hope there is. It'd be so sad if there's not. It's the best. I can I can wait another year. If it's you know if it's not able to happen, then whatever. Yeah, it's true. I I it means the movies will be way better. That's for sure. Yeah, if they have the same lineup and they just carry it over into the next year, just like everything's a ten out of ten. That's what they'll have to do. Well, you you know what? Not everything will be ten out of ten. Yeah, I know. They're getting sloppy. Some of the pro some of the programming is getting sloppy. Mm-hmm. I think that was it for questions. I've got like, um, unless you guys had had more for Matt. No, I'm good. We have questions from Reddit too, but we're going to ask those at the end. Yeah, we got those later. I do have one final thing that one little question I have regarding your relationship with the way with everything you've directed, you've also starred in it. I'm just curious if that's something you have done out of necessity or you'd enjoy doing that or you prefer that over working with a specific actor or something like that i'm just curious what your motivation behind that choice is yeah that comes from something we were talking about earlier which is that when you're in canada um it's actually really really hard to find actors who are Mm. actually i don't want to i don't want to tar everybody with the same brush because i'm sure there are actors that that we could find if we looked hard enough yeah it's more difficult to find them yeah big time like we don't have the same infrastructure of casting agents and people who know people and it's not like we're living in new york where you just hear about great actors who are young and up and coming like that infrastructure Mm -hmm. just doesn't exist and if you want to sort of control your own production uh, process, you want to more or less own your own camera and be able to control when you shoot. And for us, that meant that I would act in it because I was always there and I was always available. And so Mm -hmm. that made things so much easier. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because I thought, oh, I'll be good at this. It's that, oh, I can write things that are based on my own personality and it'll just make things so much 
easier. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I, when I was when I was like twenty years old, I was much more interested in like making Wes Anderson style movies with like big, huge productions, and like I was a total dilettante, like I was a, like a complete hack. Right, I had just come out of film school, <laughs> and I had no idea what my voice was or what I wanted to do. And so this was almost like me biding my time and waiting until I could make something right. quote unquote real. And it just so happened that I enjoyed the process of doing it so much. And I was able to discover so much about filmmaking in this style by doing it this way, almost as a joke to myself. I was like, oh, <laughs> like, I'm just, who cares? I'm just doing this for me and my friends. Jay and I are just acting ridiculous in front of one another. And we're cutting it together so that it makes some semblance of sense. I was never thinking I'm making a movie or I'm making a TV show. Like, I never thought that. I thought this is this is more or less me wasting my time. But then it evolved like like all things. I mean, I think you guys, I, I, I don't know your specific work, but certainly Adam, I imagine that your story is vaguely similar where you begin doing something as not so serious and you're like, okay, I'm just mm-hmm. going to see what happens and I'm going to see where it takes me. And then what's amazing is that as soon as a process gets instantiated in in what you're doing, that process will take you to insane places. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like you're not in control of it, which which is which is again yeah. like such a sure. magical feeling that I, I would say every major successful YouTuber, uh, because because I see this happen all the time with YouTube or podcaster, they go through this same process. You look at their early stuff, you look at like PewDiePie's early videos, mm-hmm. and you're like, what? How does this guy become who who he is? And it's just <laughs> yeah. by doing it over and over and over again. And then the process becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. As long as you're your mm-hmm. own toughest critic, as long as you're looking for things to improve every time. Mm-hmm. That that is the thing that most people lack, and why most people are like, "Oh, it's good enough. I'll mm-hmm. put this shit out," and they yeah. never improve. You you're a hundred percent right. Yeah. You're a hundred percent right. Hmm. You're you're right about it coming from some like creative place or something that you enjoy doing at first. And we've all used copyright material too in our work, like because we we felt like we were making something new and like something creative with this copyrighted work. So it is kind of similar to what you were saying. Mm-hmm. I completely agree, and I would argue that that taking it a step further, the use of copywritten material has such a it's almost seen one as like a bratty or oh you're doing something illegal type thing or two it's seen as lazy. I think that this is it is so the opposite and I'm going to uh like pull from that horrible movie Finding Forrester. No what was it? You're the man now dog? Is that it? Okay. What's you're the, the man one with now Sean dog Connery website, where... isn't it? Unless that's also No, you're the man now dog. You're the man now dog comes from the Sean Connery quote from that movie where he's trying to teach that inner city black kid how to write. Oh okay. I think it's it. Finding Forrester, but he more or less suggests that this guy steal a passage from his book as the opening paragraph of something that he's going to write. And the student does this and gets in all this trouble, et cetera, et cetera. And this movie is not a good movie. But the <laughs> point it's making is so true that theft early in your career and stealing from other people and using it as a jumping off point for your own work is the way everybody should be working. Mm-hmm. when they're trying to figure out who they are. It's mm-hmm. so useful and it this it, it's like a teaching tool 
Like you should be actively doing it because whether you want to or not, you are doing it, except you're doing it without stealing the copyrighted material. You're pretending to be somebody you admire. You're wishing that you were a filmmaker. You're not. You're trying to secretly steal moves from other people. And what's so crazy is that you look at the filmmakers who have made massive careers in North America in the last 20 years, and they're people who do it openly. Like Quentin Tarantino and Wes Anderson are open about yeah. their theft. Right? They're not trying to hide it. In fact, it becomes a part of their voice. And it, it's the way that everybody should be doing this because we have a shared history of cinema that everybody should be constantly mining because there's no way that because you stole 55 shots from you know brief encounter that, oh, you're just ripping off David Lean. Why do we need you? We've got David Lean. You're not telling that story. You're telling your own story using the tools that you really appreciated from that movie. Yeah, 100%. With my channel, the the first videos uh, on, on my entire channel were very, like, I even said it in my first video. I'm like, yeah, I'm ripping off Red Letter Media. And the, the format was way too similar. But I needed that to be able to figure out my own voice, to be able to start something. And to give you the confidence. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right? And, it, and it gives you the confidence to try. Yeah. Like, there's, there's such a... Especially, especially with, with, with kids in North America, there is like a painful oppression of, okay, I do not want to be seen as uncool, making a mistake, trying too hard. Like these emotions are so powerful on young people that they just do not try because the last thing they want to get is cast out of the group or be, or be told on the internet, you're a loser or, or nowadays like be canceled for, <laughs> for having the wrong opinion on something. Right. Yeah. And these are totally, totally oppressive, anti-artistic ideas. Whereas 100%. if you can find some some bedrock like, oh, well, I'll just rip off Red Letter, Me Red Letter Media. People like Red Letter Media. I like Red Letter Media. I'll just do something that's kind of like a fan service to that. Uh, you do it and then you realize, wait a minute, this has basically given me the confidence to try to do things on my own. Like that, that to me is a unbelievable success story that I wish more people would know. And there's an audience for it too. Huge. Huge. Yeah. Look, everybody is pretending. Everybody's <laughs> pretending. The guys on Red Letter Media are pretending, right? And they, everybody feels this type of imposter syndrome all mm -hmm. the time. And it's kind of a part of our shared humanity, right? Like, it's, it's one of the reasons the talented sure. Mr. Ripley is so fucking good. We, we all feel like that we aren't who we pretend to be. And that actually is a way that you can have confidence by admitting it. Um, because then it means that you can go out and try anything. So long as you're willing to to wear that, which again, it's just, it really is a, a perfect segue into this film because that is what F for Fake is completely and totally about. Yeah, about pretending to be something that you're not, and where that actually takes you. When we had uh, David Sandberg <laughs> on the podcast, he was definitely talking about imposter syndrome too. It's like, dude, you just you you've had hits, you know, you <laughs> like you're you're a very successful filmmaker. Right, but he still felt. Yeah. It, it, it's it's really weird when you look at just like the level of self criticism that that people have in general. Like everybody's really unconfident in ways, despite their successes. But that's in a way almost a good thing, kind of. You you, you don't oh, want to be so overconfident, you. right? You don't want to be the opposite end of that. Where you think you're the best and then you never improve and then you're always going to be shit. Well, you you hit the you already said the brilliant thing about your own work, which is that 
you can try as much as you want, but if you aren't unbelievably critical of yourself, you never are going to improve. And I would say that the imposter syndrome has been falsely labeled and it is a feature, not a bug of human psychology. It's mm. actually amazing because if we didn't have it, we would all wind up with this Dunning-Kruger effect mm. about our own lives all the time where we think we're so great and we would never Look, no matter who you are, like there's a reason that Martin Scorsese's movies have fallen off so much. There's a reason why Christopher Nolan's movies have like they've taken a nosedive because they're at a point where nobody's judging them in their own circle of friends. Nobody's telling right, them yeah. that you that this isn't good enough. This isn't up to your standard and they themselves are not self-critical, right? Mm -hmm. So you wind up having this huge separation between the quality of a lot of filmmakers or a lot of artists' early work and their later work because they stop this reflexive process of feeling like, oh, I'm not who I say I am. Because you should always feel like you can be better, mm -hmm. no matter who you are. Yeah, and that's why it's so good that that, that that guest was thinking, oh, yeah, I still feel this way because that's what's driving him to do better work. It doesn't matter how good you are. You could be the best. You could literally be the best filmmaker in the world right now. And if you didn't think you could get better, it would more or less be your death. Like, because then what are you still doing on this planet? You've yeah. already done it. <laughs> Just leave. <laughs> Very well said. And I think that yeah. is a pretty good uh, segue into uh, the film discussion. So usually uh, how we start the film discussion is the person that recommended it gives a little blurb and just says what the movie is. Uh, and then I, I guess we just start a back and forth discussion. Did you want to introduce the movie, Matt? Since uh, I, I'd be happy to. Perfect. Yeah. So Ephraim we say spoilers it, too. Spoilers, I guess, Spoiler, everybody. <laughs> Spoiler discussion. I guess there's there's spoilers for this film. Look, if you can make it all the way through it, I'll say up front, this film is fairly boring if you're not watching it from the point of view of, uh, wow, this was groundbreaking for 1974, okay? But it's, it's a documentary kind of made by Orson Welles about forgeries. And so that is the sort of in a nutshell description of what the film is. Orson Welles follows the story of this one art forger living in a, the island of Ibiza named Elmir Delhori, whose his name is not important, but at the time in the 70s, this guy was renowned as the world's most famous art forger. And he could forge ever, anything, like anything, Picasso's, or like it, he was forging shit all the time and illegally selling it to major dealers and making, well, the film is, is spotty on this because they didn't want to get sued. But this is basically how he was living this gangster lifestyle on this island with, with his little gay boyfriend, of which he had all these little <laughs> mm -hmm. gay servants. This guy was a pimp. Like, this guy was crazy. He's about, I don't know, 60 years old, living the life. He went to jail, by the way. The film doesn't get into this. Mm -hmm. But he went to jail in Spain for two months for being gay. Oh, really? That wow. was the charge. Two wow. months for homosexuality. Jesus. Um, but he's a, an unbelievable talent. And his biography at the same time is being written by a guy, Clifford Irving, who's an American writer who a lot of people may not know. But he was extremely famous also in the 1970s for faking a biography about Howard Hughes. And all this is happening by accident. So while you're watching the film, you're learning that it just so happens that you're watching a documentary about this art forger who at the same time is having his biography written about him by somebody who forged a biography. Mm -hmm. And it was not meant to be this way. And then the film kind of travels away from that and becomes a self-indulgent nightmare where Orson Welles talks about how great he is. <laughs> but <laughs> That's kind of meta though, yeah. Yes, it's that it is a hugely... It's a totally sincere look 
at people who fake things, people who copy things, and what is the true meaning of art. Mm-hmm. And if you had to, if you had to say what the thesis of this was, it seems like it's something around the lines of what makes something art. And this is something that Orson Welles obviously was very interested in personally, but he tries to explore it through other con artists in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more like a an essay style documentary in ways where it's like about his thoughts on the subject mm-hmm. rather than just telling a straightforward, like fact based timeline of events. It's more about the ideas behind the events themselves. And it's very thought provoking. Yeah, and I would say way ahead of its time too, in terms of what it's saying about copying and in terms of the construction of the film, which is why for me it was such a, I mean, this to me is like, oh, I would say one of three of the biggest touchstone movies I ever saw in my life. Mm-hmm. I saw it right right before I started making Nirvana the Band, the web series, and I couldn't believe that somebody had done this so long ago and that I had never seen anybody do it since. Like this kind of, like totally illegal shooting, all real people, but also like totally fake people saying they're real mm-hmm. and really clumsy like like reenactments but combined with completely real footage that seemed like mistakes i like i couldn't believe how it was constructed and you watch it now and you think okay well orson wells is a bum he has no money he's a liar and this stuff is just him struggling through completing the movie like he's desperately <laughs> trying to just finish the movie and so all of these mistakes are there because he can't do any better, right? Like there's that is one way of viewing it. But when I was young, I was watching it like, this guy's a genius. This is crazy. I can't believe he's just, you know, shooting on the streets with real people and and nobody cares. Or that he's having his girlfriend walk down the street and have people look at her. And like he's turning that into a plot. Like how do you, how do you do this? Not realizing that it's like, oh, this guy was so hard up for money that he was willing to do literally anything. Well, yeah, there's a bit of yeah. both in there for sure. You know, like he mm. he is kind of unintentionally comical at, at many points throughout this film, just the way he presents himself too. And he's so <laughs> extravagant. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, he's he's old vaudeville, and he's so funny. He's like, mm-hmm. he, what's crazy though? It's almost like the room. In many ways, he's he's got to got a bit of a Tommy Wiseau character to him because when he's <laughs> trying to be funny, it comes off as quite corny. And you're like, what? Like when he shrinks his girlfriend in the suitcase, oh, yeah. and he's like, hey, hey, now she'll fit on the plane. And you're like, you're pathetic. Like you're an old man <laughs> shrinking your 24 year old girlfriend, trying to act like you're so cool. Like it's. Pathetic. Pathetic. But then at the same time, he'll do other conversational things that are hilarious. Mm-hmm. Like you can't believe he's saying it. He's so charming. Um, again, I don't know how much of it he was in control of. Yeah. Yeah. Some of it of might just be kind of like serendipitous. Uh, the editing of the film too. The editing is, is crazy. crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you were saying. And I also see how it kind of influenced other things like Red Letter Media. That kind of like, like the Plinker Reviews. Uh, the personality like taking over and then there's like this fact-based stuff i don't know i see how like, how it influenced a lot of stuff mm-hmm. um, but yeah the editing's fucking nuts it, and it's especially and, i've heard 70s. so many stories i've heard so many stories about the editing in this film again if you if, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the film it is it is worth watching for not you could watch with the volume off just to see how they're editing this movie because it's coming from a time of optical printing um Mm -hmm. and so if you don't know what that means it's like there are no digital effects you can't put text on screen without going through a two-stage process of reprinting your negative with the text on it like nothing could be done easily this movie has 
what do you, what would you guys say? Like, it seems like 500 freeze frames. Yeah. Like, yeah. A lot of freeze yeah. frames. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's almost <laughs> like ADHD in a way. It's, it's absolutely insane. Not just for a film from the seventies, but like, especially a documentary <laughs> from the seventies to be edited in this way. Most documentaries yeah. that I've seen, especially older ones are like very much more like mature and like slow, methodical sort of thing. And this one just seems like really all over the place, but it fits it so well. Well, because it's about the construction of art. I've heard stories that Orson Welles had six editors working at the same time in the same room on six different Steenbecks, and he would just walk between <laughs> them, sort of barking commands <laughs> at all of them. But, but again, that's one of these stories that, you know, maybe Orson Welles tried to spread that story. I've also heard a story that he traveled constantly with his own Steenbeck. And if you don't know what that is, like these machines, which you see constantly in the movie, like they're, they're, they show you the editing process in this movie all the time. So if you want to see how they edited movies in the 70s, this is a great way to see it. Um, that he would carry one with him wherever he went as he traveled between his house in, in France to Ibiza to Italy. Like this is absurd. Nobody could do this. Like to, to, to travel with one of these things is like driving an elephant around with you. But it, it, there's a lot of like rumors and legends around the construction of this movie. I, there's, I think there's two credited editors, but uh, I, 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 what I've heard is that it was mostly Orson just barking commands at interns. <laughs> That's great. So none of us had seen this before, right? Except for you, Matt, right? No. I'm no. Not. I'm curious. Did anybody <laughs> expect the uh, bullshit at the end reveal? Did anybody? Because that was in the back of my mind the <laughs> whole didn't. time. I was like... He's gonna he's gonna pull some trickery on me because he said that he wouldn't. Like, you, you cheeky bastard! You're ahead of the curve. And yeah, taking note of like for the next hour, everything I say is true. I'm like, mm. I almost thought that the whole thing would have been faked. I was actually watching the movie, thinking like, if these are all actors and this didn't actually happen, because I wasn't even familiar with the actual uh, story of this this forger. I was thinking like, man, if these were actually actors, that would be an insane movie <laughs> because everything's so natural yeah. but i i had it spoiled for me before mm -hmm. so i wasn't tricked by it but uh i don't know he's <laughs> using the editing too to trick you at the end like there's freeze frames and stuff on people's faces to make them look guilty or whatever it, it's creative how he used it but yeah. i saw it coming creating yeah. art is a lie in of itself and i think yeah, that was said exactly. near the beginning of the film is that like artists are are forgers <laughs> in mm -hmm. any sense Magicians. he's using the medium to trick the audience yeah which mm -hmm. is very cool well <laughs> yeah job, Orson, but like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> i thought it was so wacky to get to that point that uh -huh. i didn't see it coming i was just kind of with it just waiting for the for it to do what it was gonna do like it, <laughs> we already said yeah. how it was awesome wells that held the whole thing together for me and this like uh overall vague thesis that was kind of carrying everything i particularly like the whole if there weren't any art experts could, would there be any fakers kind of questions yeah. that it brings up mm -hmm. yeah these kind of circular ideas and yeah, it's, these stories are so seemingly random at first, but they do all have that through line, despite how <laughs> scattershot some of the presentation is. Um, but yeah. I, I kind of disagree with um, Matt saying it's it's kind of boring. 
um, at this point in time because for me that that wackiness made it so unique yeah. and the presentation of it was so unlike anything I'd seen before I was entertained throughout especially by the time you do get to the whole like Picasso and the the fake story stuff I, I found it really entertaining mm-hmm. yeah, I'm actually so happy to hear that because I mean I, I, I say that in almost a self-effacing way because I clearly adore this movie so yeah. much when i watch it now i think of other people watching it being like this filmmaker is so full of himself i can't <laughs> believe like it's the most self-indulgent for those of you who haven't seen it most of the movie is him talking about how hot his 24 year old girlfriend is and i'm, and I'm not exaggerating like a good like he milk he makes plot points out of how hot his girlfriend is. He has his girlfriend walk around in Rome, I think, and just films guys' reaction yeah, that to was her. That's a great sequence. It's, it's so what's weird. amazing is it, it's the opening credits, and you're like, this like it, of course he doesn't say this is my girlfriend. And so if you know that, then you're just like, oh my God, this guy's his <laughs> his ego's so deluded. His wife is at home in Los Angeles at the time that they're shooting this, and he's just gallivanting around. He's got a 24-year-old Croatian girlfriend. And he's like, Why don't we make a movie where it's about how hot my mistress is? <laughs> That's the whole plot. And then we'll find all this other stuff about art along the way. Um, so that's why I say I hope it's not too boring. Um, uh, but but I, I was happy to hear that. If you are caught up in the story he's telling, then I can imagine you're like, holy shit, this lady like raped Picasso and stole all of his paintings? That's insane. <laughs> yeah. Like what a crazy story. And it really is. Um, I, you know what? Let me ask uh, uh, Adam a question because – it's something that I imagine you don't get asked often, and it's so sure. related to the content of this film. And it's this. This movie is about the art criticism world and how it, one, creates markets, and two, allows for a certain, we'll call it the pretentious class, mm-hmm. to rise to the status of elite, right? Where if you say, oh, this modularity, what's the painter's name? I'll just say this Picasso. This Picasso is, this is sophisticated. I recognize this as a true Picasso. That puts me in the upper class, just my taste of, mm-hmm. of recognizing it. Do you feel that because you have such specific tastes and your tastes seem to carry such weight with such a, a, a huge amount of people uh, worldwide that you can recognize how you have a cultural shaping force just through criticism? Well, yeah, 100%. I mean, if I, the way that I rate my movies, like it's very infrequent that I'll give something a, a 10 out of 10 rating. And so whenever I give something that high of a rating, people are freaking out. <laughs> um, people will go on mm-hmm. my subreddit and be like, oh my God, we got another one. Like, uh, which the last one I gave was for the lighthouse, and I absolutely loved that movie. I remember, I saw, I remember seeing you after you saw it. And do you think that your because I agree with this type of rating system? I actually think that ratings are ridiculous at the moment because everybody's mm-hmm. like so with video games with everything, it's like everything has to be a nine. It's like or else the it's numbers mediocre. below seven. <laughs> yeah. The numbers below seven don't even exist. It's it's completely absurd. But yeah. are you feeling that your severity? is helping to curb that in other people and that other people are becoming, I don't want to say more cynical because I don't actually view it as cynicism, but that people are becoming more 
grounded in terms of their film criticism because they're following you and listening to the way that you critique things. I've I've heard that before. I mean, I've heard people <laughs> saying like that after watching my reviews or being a fan of my material for a while that they look at movies in a more critical way because of it. Um, but I, I've always held the perspective that it's okay to like something even if you're critical of it. Like there's there's movies that I'll I'll watch like every year because I love them so much and I love the experience. But at the same time, I'm able to be like, okay, well, this is kind of stupid about it. I don't like this about it. This was done kind of sloppily, but still enjoy it. And even if I give it like, what, a six out of 10 or something, that doesn't mean that, you know, the, the, the experience that you get from it personally, that is not something that is really taken away by doing that. And at the end of the day, I mean, like, I don't really think that my criticisms should dictate what people should be able to enjoy or what people should feel comfortable in enjoying it because realistically it's you know the, the the people that should take my criticisms the most seriously are people that you know their opinions are already more or less aligned with mine so if people look at a critic as a, a sort of barometer or be like okay well i agree with 90 percent of what he says so if he says a movie is good or bad then i'm probably going to feel that way that makes sense as long as it's not treated as like this objective standard as long as it's not treated that way i think it's fine and yeah so i do i do have that kind of influence in a way but at the same time the type of media that i'm creating there's a good amount of people that are watching me not necessarily for the opinions that i have on a film but the way that it's presented so like these larger projects where i'm like dissecting a movie and you know comedically tearing it apart there's things going into yeah, that. Yeah, but don't where... don't 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 sell yourself short. Look, criticism is, is. I actually think it's a broad category, and even just your meta analysis of work still imparts on the audience. A, like like John Berger, mm -hmm. like it. It's a way of seeing work. It's a way of seeing art. And so even if you may think, oh, people are just watching this because they think I'm funny or because we have a rapport. It depends on uh, the person, audience, and artist. There's a bit of yeah, both. but they but they they're still absorbing. Again, that that way of seeing and way of ingesting art. I, I bring it up not because I'm. I'm. Uh, I mean, obviously, your taste is important, mm -hmm. but I bring it up because I feel like in film criticism, very much like in art criticism, there is a role that seems to have been almost forgotten mm -hmm. or or relegated to to very few critics, uh, and that is that to say, okay, this filmmaker is lying. Like this filmmaker, this movie is, this movie is fake. You do not need to waste your time with this because this is like a bullshit pretentious moron <laughs> who's trying to fool audiences and I have seen through it mm -hmm. and I'm letting <laughs> you know that I've seen through it. And I see, I see you do that all the time in many of your uh, uh, film criticisms, even if you're not saying those exact words. Mm -hmm. And I actually see that as a very important service. And it's something that most legacy media critics just can't do because of their relationships or because of the standards that they are forced to mm -hmm. uphold or because mm -hmm. they just don't have the taste. But to me, uh -huh. F for Fake got at that idea in a way that I thought was so interesting because it basically says to the film, to the critics, to all mm -hmm. art critics, your job is to spot the forgeries. Your job is to tell me when something is authentic or it's not. And as soon as you can't do that anymore, and as soon as the artist can fool you, you are irrelevant. Like the art has moved past you. Yeah. 
in a way, yeah, but there's also the like philosophical elements that it brought up, like when they say who's the expert and who's the faker when referring to mm-hmm. someone who makes a forgery that fools an expert, right? And I think in a way it's also trying to communicate that like regardless of how well you can spot a fake, like everybody in their own profession, whether or not you're a critic or like like an art critic or a film critic, in a way we're all kind of faking. In a way we're all kind of just, you know, doing <laughs> doing what we think is appropriate. And no one's really truly an expert. I think you that accept it your own taste. That. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, some people are have more expertise than others. It's not like everybody's the exact same. But I think that to some degree, like anyone can be fooled. Anybody can be incorrect about <laughs> their perspectives or about um, how they view things. There are some times mm-hmm. where, you know, there'll be details about an artist's intent that might not be clear to people when they view a film. So a lot of people came out saying Under the Silver Lake was a sexist movie, which I completely disagree with because I, I, watching the film, it's pretty clear to me that it's a commentary on sexism. So even though it shows... I, di- I didn't find it are, sexist either. Yeah, yeah it's, it's mm-hmm. very clearly pointing out sexism within Hollywood because it is a commentary, it is a criticism of these things. So that doesn't necessarily invalidate someone's experience, but I do think that the artist's intent is also, you know, it, it should be considered uh, more importantly. Mm-hmm. I have a, I have a, I have a take on a on a, on uh, Under the Silver Lake, and mm-hmm. I think it's a filmmaking lesson. And that's if you've seen this movie, it is a uh, it's the It Follows guys uh, follow up, and it was making it for years with Andrew Garfield, an un- unbelievable performance by Andrew Garfield. As uh, um, a friend of mine said. He does not give up on the performance, even though he probably should midway through the movie. But, <laughs> but I think that the movie is is extremely fascinating, but plotting, and it gets kind of lost in itself. This is in, this is just my opinion. Uh, this is my mm-hmm. experience watching it, and then uh, reading about it afterwards. I think I know why, and it's because the director decided that he was going to encode an entire mystery in the movie, which is a brilliant idea. Mm -hmm. Like he has all of these codes and secrets that slowly reveal themselves and actually form in this massive, huge conspiracy. It's actually like a a bit like the old Graham base book, The 11th Hour, uh, which is a children's book that has a hidden mystery throughout it, if you know Mm -hmm. where to look. Yeah, we've talked about it a few times on the podcast. (laughs) We all love it. I'm sure sure you have. But but I will tell you from a filmmaker's uh, point of view on this, on, on doing this as an idea, I think that it wound up limiting his ability to edit his own film so severely that it made the pacing difficult for broad audiences. For broad so audiences, I don't want sure. to. Yes, yes. Now, look, I'm not trying to like, I know people who love the movie. I found the movie uh, quite enjoyable until that scene with the old guy singing the Nirvana songs. And I was like, I just can't take this. But, <laughs> but I did, but I did, but I did think the movie was. Uh, um, extremely interesting and mm-hmm. i thought oh my gosh i think this guy in the editing room kind of got stuck because he needed to have all of these scenes in this order yeah, in, for the mystery that he had encoded he can't cut it out and everything that i've ever made has been re-edited like crazy and was never our original intention right i would say that's the only reason that the stuff that i've made is even slightly watchable is because we've completely torn it apart and put it back together and not having that tool as a filmmaker i think can hurt you when it comes to getting 
again, broad audiences to follow your your stories. That said, I, I, I love lots about the movie, so I'm, I'm not trying to trash mm -hmm. it. I just thought I would I would sure. include that. It's a very interesting perspective on it. <laughs> yeah. I haven't heard that criticism. Coming back to uh, F for Fake, mm -hmm. have have uh, any of you seen? I, I I got vibes from a couple other movies while watching it. There's a uh, 2014, I believe, documentary called Art and Craft about it's also about a forger mm -hmm. it's not nearly as like meta it's not like an essay style documentary it's like a literal documentary yeah but it, yeah. it followed him and he was such a weird interesting character i think he might have been like autistic or something but yeah that that was <laughs> that was definitely a fun watch and it was really really funny and just watching there's this b plot going on where uh <laughs> there's a guy that's like trying to pin him just being like i'm, I'm trying to get this guy <laughs> thrown in jail and his entire life is just revolving around this art forger. He's and he's a total loser. Oh yeah, like and he, he winds up like destroying his own family basically. And it's just like, oh, it's so crazy. And then there's another documentary called uh, "My Kid Could Paint That," and part of the reason why it uh, reminded me of that is because that's also a documentary where it is very critical of what dictates as art. And I, I feel like for in F for Fake. One of the biggest reasons why I enjoy it is not just the presentation. It's not just it being ahead of its time and the crazy editing. It's the philosophical elements, really. Like, that that can elevate my perspective of a movie, is being able to think of things in a different way because of the film. There are very few films that do that, and I think this one did it well. Mm -hmm. There's this documentary, The Imposter. Have you seen that? I don't. It's a masterpiece. I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, that one's great. It. But it has kind of like a fake-out ending element like like uh f for fake and it reminded me of that too i i heard they stole it from mm. f for fake so yeah. i yeah adam if it, you you got to see this movie okay. it's basically about uh, like it's about a guy who pretends to be the long lost son of an american family mm. and they buy it and they <laughs> raise him he's like he's like a french kid like a runaway and he pretends to be their kid and he moves in with them and lives with them for like a decade and they raise him and it's a documentary about the crazy fallout that happens because of it it is extremely extremely well made beyond being a great story it's extremely well made yeah well i'm not going to spoil anything because i want adam sure. to see it yeah uh, but yeah there's definitely a lot in common with that mm -hmm. uh ralph or alex did you uh have any more to say about uh for fake we've pretty much covered most of it i think um mm. but yeah i found it really thought-provoking um and just the <laughs> we already mentioned how Orwell has this pretty funny just cadence about him just to, mm -hmm. his screen presence has a humor to it but I was cracking up every t every different situation that he was finding himself in as he was like introducing a new s segment like for example there's that one point where he, he just straight up interrupts the the movie just to like order a steak or like drink oh yeah something. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's one the of the way best. he orders <laughs> it you can tell it's not the first time those words came out of his mouth it's so funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> Apparently, they ate at that restaurant all the time, him and the cinematographer. And I love that the waiter comes over and his, his line is, will you take these away, please? It's a stack of muscles, <laughs> like, a, like a three foot high stack of muscles. He's like, take these away, please, and uh, bring the steak. And it's like a couple of steaks <laughs> that he orders. Then he, sp <laughs> then he spills a glass of red oh, wine and all instantly transitions into spilled wine, a bit behind the ear for luck. He takes the wine and rubs it behind the ears of the people beside him and never and doesn't say anything about it and then he just keeps telling the story it's crazy yeah that's why i wasn't questioning anything i was just yeah. letting it happen in front of my eyes 
I'll say one last thing about the film, which uh, which isn't obvious when you're first watching it, but I think actually adds to the experience quite a bit, and it's, especially if you're a Herzog fan. And that's that this film actually came together in the same way that Grizzly Man did, mm-hmm. which is that it was a documentary that already existed about Elmir Delory. The film, oh, yeah. the the uh, yep. film forger that was then brought to Orson for advice, and rather than give oh. advice on how to finish the movie, mm-hmm. he said, "Just give it to me, and I'll finish it." Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of the footage of Elmir, of Clifford Irving, like a lot of the early interviews, that's all from a completely, you could say, different film that Orson goes in and then basically inserts himself into. And getting back to the conversation we were having earlier about like starting somewhere that's somebody else's work and then figuring out how to make it your own. I think this movie is an unbelievably good example of that because he took somebody else's documentary and was like, okay, how can I make this an Orson Welles film? And so I wonder Mm. if that's what leads to all the crazy editing, all of the inserts of him doing magic tricks, him talking directly (laughs) to the camera, wall-to-wall voiceover, him putting his girlfriend in before this stuff. Like, why does he do this if not for a sense of true imposter syndrome and him feeling like, well, I've got this other person's movie. I need to make it my movie. And so it leads to all these bizarre offshoots that if you were to pitch on their own, you'd be like – what sounds ridiculous, don't do that. But because he <laughs> felt like he had to, it creates this bizarre and in- insane piece of art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the task of structuring the film alone is really impressive, let alone the editing. Mm. It's so bizarre. Ralph, did you have any more to add on, on this uh, movie? No, I- I'm just stunned by it. Yeah, I-, I like it a lot, definitely. The indulgent factor i guess i could understand that but he had so much personality to the thing he basically makes the movie yeah oh i say it's a good thing it's a good thing yeah, the indulgence yeah. is good i'm not trying yeah. to say it's bad it's just that if you hate orson welles this will be your least favorite movie yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's always been indulgent i mean he's like he's in citizen kane he plays the main character he's like this uh you know billionaire handsome ladies man whatever so i'm used to his shit like that you're used to orson welles's shit eh? <laughs> It doesn't yeah. fool you anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just I don't. It's after that wine commercial or whatever that was. Like I just couldn't take him seriously anymore. It's so funny. Like the the fur and champagne or whatever the fuck. <laughs> like that was just. Oh, it's so good. Paul Masson. Paul Masson. <laughs> Imagine being hired to do a commercial and showing up shit faced. Like, well, imagine, imagine, imagine being the actor who gets to sit next to oh, Orson Welles and watch him do this and be like. Oh my God! Is, isn't is, isn't he going to say something <laughs> uh, when Orson looks at the actor right beside him? Yeah, the uh, it, it, I'll give one more quote, sure. that, and this is like one of my favorite Orson Welles quotes before uh, before we move on, and that's that Orson Welles was famous for saying if he was ever in an interview, and it's so true for this movie, he'd often do interviews by phone because he would say, "If I can see the person's face." I'm too tempted to lie in order to please them. Hmm. And that that to me sums up so much of what's happening in this movie. Like he's lying because he wants the audience to love him. Everything he says, he says with such style because he wants the audience to love him. This is a guy who's so late in his career, so desperate to try to find money. His, like He's basically seen as a has-been by most people and he just wants so badly to be, well, liked in a way. And it's just dripping in every frame, this kind of like me, like me, like me. And I mean, I mean, artists generally are no different, but 
that quote sums this guy up, I think, so well. And that's that yeah. he truly is an artist and he has he has truth to tell. But if that truth is competing with his feeling that you will either like him or dislike him based on what he says, then his ego will win, which, <laughs> hey, yeah, sad. Perfectly put. Thank you for... Uh... Thank you for recommending it. I'm stoked yeah. that you guys hadn't Thank seen you. it. Yeah, I, I was. I was. Yeah. There's to bring so it. much on my it. watch list. There's so many things I need to see still. <laughs> and yeah, this was one of them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The um, I I really loved the uh, like before the P- Picasso section. There was like this kind of like ending speech, even though it wasn't the end of the movie yet. And I thought that the presentation there was really well done, where the music cuts out, and because of the editing and how fast paced and and loud and <laughs> quirky everything was before that point everything just slows down to a stop music cuts out and we hear him you know delivering his speech and i thought that that was really it, it really like drove home the importance of like the philosophical elements of the movie which i really enjoyed <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's beautiful and uh, and, a, and a coda a coda is that the the star of the film elmir delori committed suicide two years after this movie came out. Nothing to do with the film, but because the Spanish government finally agreed to extradite him to France to go to jail for all of this forging nonsense. And he thought he'd rather die. Yeah. Crazy. Um, So usually what we do at the end of a movie discussion, we give a rating out of 10. You don't have to if you don't want to. But (laughs) I'm giving this one an 8 out of 10. What about you guys? Jesus. I'm right there Mm. with you. 8 out of 10. I'd say seven out of ten. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, this movie is like the H index on this film for my work is like unbelievable. I have to give it a ten. Mm-hmm. And no it's not shame because in I enjoy it that much, but but I've 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 stolen so much from it. Like half of Operation Avalanche is stolen <laughs> directly from this movie. The whole reason that we edit on Steenbecks and show them is because of this movie. So I I I, I rate it highly, but it has nothing to do with the quality of the movie in, in my opinion <laughs> thank you so much for uh recommending it that was a good discussion oh, yeah. it's my and pleasure. it's always great to yeah, hear yeah, someone talk about something that they're really passionate about too i figured it would be good to give yeah. <laughs> you the recommendation just because i know that you you've got a lot to say about <laughs> a few different movies like so much of your work is just a love letter to other movies right so yeah, it's a few movies I can talk about a lot, and then the breadth of my knowledge is basically nothing. Like outside of those few films that I reference all the time, I I'm a complete moron. So you you got me on the you got me on the right title. Good, good. All right, uh, time for questions. Yeah, yeah. Let's do some questions from the Sardonicast community. If you want to leave Ooh. your own questions for us to answer in the future, head over to the Sardonicast subreddit where there'll be a suggestion thread where you can ask whatever you like. Let's start with this one then from. Furry and and zero. He says, <laughs> "What is one film you feel defines the 2010s culture the best?" So I guess the last ten years. What is the film that kind of defines? I don't know if they mean like film culture or culture as a whole, but there is definitely a lot of overlap with that. Hmm. I think the Marvel films, like in terms of what's actually oh, had yeah. the biggest impact on culture. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. Yeah. I think those. I guess that's not a bad. I think answer. those have made the most money. I what think merchandising they've made the, the most. Question. Yeah. Which one? Which one? Avengers Endgame. <laughs> yeah, one of those. Cynical of it. What do I say? The best one, I mean, or like the one that made the, the end most of the money? Just one you feel. That was kind of the end of an era, wasn't represents it? Represents it. You know. Yeah. 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 I guess I you could know. say that. Hmm. I guess it built up to that one. Immediately coming to my mind, it's a weird answer, but I was yeah. thinking Drive, even though that's like very 
eighties, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, there was a huge resurgence of of like right. throwback eighties stuff from Drive. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, everybody was doing eighties uh-huh. throwback, which is kind of funny that that in a way defined a decade as just being from a previous decade. But and yeah, I would also Baby say Driver. the cynicism of that film and the totally silent protagonist. Mm-hmm. Like I, I agree that that film was was it was more of a movement. It was very much in, in my opinion was a lot like the fight club of uh, of its era mm-hmm. with with people really yeah. like I mean that that became an instant Halloween costume. People identified with the character. It, it had something to it that 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 later was kind of redone in Mad Max and and other films that were sort of similar but I I think that that's a great pick. More people at least in my circle would be talking about that movie or giving references to that movie than I would say most films from the last 10 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say so. I've seen a lot of people in uh scorpion jackets walking around, especially yeah. in film school. <laughs> they have that same driver <laughs> jacket that he had. My initial answer was Avengers Endgame cuz I feel like oh, okay. that. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like it just kind of summarizes that whole like superhero subgenre, you know, movement that really grew, I guess, since like 2008. But it really did kind of flourish during 2010 to, and then culminating with that movie last year. So, mm-hmm. and if I wanted to be yeah. extra cynical, I'd say something like Ready Player One, <laughs> almost for similar reasons as, um, drive but i actually like yeah drive. in a way I really like ready player one but ready player one wasn't a movement at all like it kind of came and went it, it was really no yeah but it movie. was like no, it, it was like an imitation of that though it was like it was like the the culmination of of that movement expressed in ready player one as far Not as defining well. yeah like yeah fan right culture of the time it kind of summarizes that that a movie like that could come out and yeah be assumed to be like a good idea everything is just a reference like i love that character i love that character i love that character hey they're all in the same movie mm-hmm. does it matter <laughs> no yeah right well i mean that's that's in many ways you're summing up many of the marvel movies too mm-hmm. but uh <laughs> yeah if, if, if only more people had that movie just kind of came and went. That poor Spielberg, eh? <laughs> <laughs> he got he got killed on now that. Now he's one. making movies for Apple. Uh. <laughs> it's funny if you're if you're gonna say that, then you may as well be saying Joker, right? Because I that, just had that note down. That yeah. that seems like it, <sighs> I feel like Joker is almost twenty twenty though. <laughs> It's like the yes, start I of suppose. it. It's like the tail end. It's yeah. Like not really defining the decade. It's kind of like its own new thing. I don't think people will be talking about Joker in, you know, five years outside of like a, as a meme joke, though, in a way that they, I think, will still be talking about Drive. I think that Drive is going to be a classic where people will be talking about I would say it, it already in is. 10 or 20 years. Yeah. Well, you can I never really know. Like, that. I mean, a classic yeah. is, you almost need to be 10 years away before you, we're, before you. We're nine really years really away. <laughs> it came out in like Yeah, yeah. Right? So we're close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In the horror genre, there's been like a, resurgence of like oh, quality yeah. horror movies too the, the witch stuff. and hereditary a lot of a24 stuff but yeah it's been like a return to more intelligent less jump scary kind of horror movies yeah that's great yeah it's good that there's like a market for that right now it's good that there's yeah. enough people Thank that are God. like actively interested in that sort of thing mm-hmm. the poultry king has one for us who says which country of the three well, but I guess four of us guys live in, has the most <laughs> accurate age rating system, in your opinion? 
including Quebec's rating system too, if you're familiar with it. I'm not familiar with it, so you guys will have to help me with that bit. So, well, we've got three countries here. We've got Canada, America, and the UK, who has the most accurate age rating system. I I mean, I would probably have to say Canada. We're a lot more relaxed and lenient what is than what is canada's NBA. rating system because i don't know it's um okay so it goes g p g 14a 18a r and so mm-hmm. the canadian r rating is the equivalency of the american nc17 rating so 18a you could you know you could be a kid showing up with their pa- your parent and it's fine r if you want to see an R-rated movie in Canada, you have to have like your own ID. But the way that things get rated is like a lot of movies that are the United States R rating will usually get like a 14A rating in Canada. And in some cases, even mm-hmm. depending on depending on how stupid the MPAA is, there there's been R-rated movies in the States that got a PG rating in Canada. A single man yeah. is an example of that, where it's just like, oh no, he's gay. <laughs> it's rated R. <laughs> like, whereas Canada, it's like, oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, there's like one shot of like a nude a photo bot. or something, and that yeah. was it. And yeah. it all of a sudden gets slapped like, with an R rating it. in the States. I want to bring up Op- Operation Avalanche got an R rating in the States for l- no reason, and I don't understand Swearing. why. Swearing. In fact, that's it's one of the so major stupid. differences between between Canada and the United States in terms of the rating system is that just profanity. Well, because it's such a it's such a conservative cabal uh, that that is running that system, and they mm-hmm. they sort of make their own judgments. It, I mean, Trey Parker and Matt Stone have a famous story about before they had power and after they had power, oh, and yeah. how they were able to just call into the rating board once they were with a major studio and say, "Hey, will you change this rating?" And they said yes. Whereas before, their early Ooh. work was getting rated like. R or or X. I don't even know what the story is, but it's Operation Avalanche was strictly because of language. Yeah, and yeah. because you don't have like a a huge pull. And you know, of course, yeah, I you're couldn't not call able into to the MPAA. That's so stupid. There was a really good documentary called uh, "This Film Is Not Yet Rated" that really went into uh, <laughs> just how stupid good. the MPAA is. I can't say I'm <laughs> as familiar with the British rating system, though. Yeah, it sounds pretty similar to what you have going on. We got U for Universal, so anyone can watch it. PG, which I guess is the same as yours. And then it's 12A, so you have to have an adult if you're 12, I guess, or younger. Then 15, then 18. That's all of them. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a little more specific. Yeah, the Amer- the American one. I'm not a fan of the MPAA. How they, they did suck. it? They suck. Like, because they do allow profanity, but only like if you say fuck once or twice, it's okay. But if you say it five times, it's an R rating. Yeah, like you so go see stupid. a Fast and Furious movie, and it's like a big moment when like Vin Diesel or Dwayne Johnson's like comes out and says like, "Find that motherfucker." <laughs> yeah, or whatever. you gotta say the one. Fuck it's like there's one in the movie. Have it, have it be like the important line where you can say "fuck." Yeah, <laughs> use it, it has wisely. To be an important line. Elizabeth Moss and Invisible Man. She's like, "Fuck you." It's like one, so oh no, that's rated R. I'm You'd sorry. You think if it's said it once, like the damage is done. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, oh no, a child can't hear it three times. What? Exactly. That's so stupid. But you know what's kind of cool that uh, that it actually winds up influencing writing, which is a cool thing because, mm-hmm. as you just said, they almost become like uh, trailer moments when mm-hmm. these American action stars will swear the one time, and then the whole audience goes, "Whoa!" <laughs> I, I'm not defending it. I'm not defending it. I think it's obviously ridiculous, but there is 
that is an argument for for forcing them to only say this thing once that actually leads to creative differences in films sure. so it's like okay bruce willis can say fuck once where is he going to do it and <laughs> You know, they write around, right. which is crazy, like writing around a ratings board. It's yeah. absurd. Yeah, I think it should be more of like a suggestion than anything else. What's unfortunate about it is with the MPAA being so arbitrary and inconsistent and uh, really just <laughs> overall dumb, unfortunately, it influences films in a negative way because people are looking for a return on their investment. And there aren't that many r-rated films that have been huge successes whenever there is one it is seen as this like crazy like i think it was what was it deadpool was r-rated mm-hmm. deadpool the and that was a big like, success and people are like See, we it. can we can yeah. make an r-rated joker. superhero movie yeah joker would be one of the examples too and um yeah unfortunately it's just like they studios don't really they're really hesitant to make these kinds of projects because in their mind they're thinking well that's a certain percentage of the demographic that won't be able to see the movie, right? We want as many people in the theaters as possible, so we have to nerf the movie, which kind of sucks, which is kind of lame, you know? Um, Especially Mm -hmm. depending on the story that you're telling. Like, if it's a violent story, realistically, I I mean, like, there would be parts where you'd want to show a bit of blood, maybe, or maybe someone should be swearing. And then when it's it's so obviously nerfed just to fit the PG-13 rating, that's that kind of bugs me. It's so stupid, but don't underestimate the power of like an R rating to market a movie either. Like the fact that we're talking about Mm -hmm. this is an R rated comedy and that becoming its own brand. Mm -hmm. Like you take away that rating system and you also take away that brand, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can't have super bad without Mm -hmm. there being a, you know, kind of a whoa, what is it around R rated comedies? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, not defending it, but there, there just is another side to it. That's all. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Even with the NC-17 rating in the 70s, they were like promoting that. Like with the, what's that movie? The guy who made Wizards, Ralph Bakshi, Russ the Cat. Oh yeah, Fritz Is the Cat. It? it was X-rated at yeah, the time. Yeah, Fritz the Cat. Yeah, it was yeah, X-rated. Yeah. And it's like, oh look, it's animated, yeah. but it's X-rated. Literally the tagline. He's <laughs> it's X-rated like a and point. animated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think if it didn't have that, then it wouldn't have been as successful. I think, I think mm-hmm. it might still be the most successful independent animated film no i think that's um ninja turtles are you sure oh animated animated you said yeah. animated independent animated okay, yeah. film no yeah you're you're completely right i th- yeah, i thought you meant to just independent generally from that era yeah so i guess if i had to choose between the american british and canadian one i'd have to just go canadian just because i i'm constantly comparing these rating systems when I see, you know, when I see what it's rated in the states versus what it's rated in Canada, I'm always thinking like, "Thank God I live here." But yeah, I'm, I'm not as familiar with the uh, the British one, so I have no idea. From what I know, I think UK has the best one, and not that I know a lot, but yeah. I think yeah, UK. we're fine with a lot of things. Like yeah. attitudes here towards like American censorship tends to lean towards like you guys are fine with like bloody violence but as soon as any nudity is involved then it gets like, <laughs> a titty really serious or <laughs> yeah. Put, yeah. put the titty away whereas we don't care <laughs> about that <laughs> yeah there is a lot of like sexual puritanism influencing the MPAA which is just just unfortunate mm. it's weird that's another thing that that uh, this film is not yet rated documentary went into is they compared identical sex scenes where uh the only difference was this character's gay and it would always get a higher rating <laughs> like like clockwork and it's just like ah oh, come on really yeah yeah of course 
MPAA. Mm. Gotta love him. All right, next question, I guess. This <laughs> <laughs> is kind of Gunner fun. Mac has one for us. This question is for Adam and Matt, but Ralph and Alex are more than welcome to answer as well. As a fellow Canadian, I'm interested to know if you guys have any favourite Canadian movies and or directors. If you had to pick some movies you think should be Canadian essentials, what would they be and why? For example, many would cite Porky's as an essential Canadian movie due to its unmatched wit, nuanced emotional med meditations, and overall its frighteningly brutal yet awe-inspiring portrayals of, mo of the modern human condition. Any other thoughts you guys have on Canadian cinema and the industry here? Uh, well, thanks a lot for the show. Part of the problem is that like so many Canadian directors just wind up making American movies anyway. So out of like the ones that I really love, uh, I would have to say Denis Villeneuve right now, because even though he has been making American movies, he still also makes Canadian movies. So like Incendie and um, mm -hmm. Enemy, Enemy and I believe Arrival was done completely in Toronto, I think. I think oh. that was still considered like a Canadian movie. No, 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 was that no, American? no, no. If Arrival, <laughs> if Arrival <laughs> was uh, so. like a fully Canadian movie, it would be on the on the flag, unfortunately, mm -hmm. um, like on the Canadian flag. I mean, that's how okay. stoked <laughs> Telefilm would have been. Um, that that was that was an American movie. It may have had okay. Canadian money, but um, well, at least Enemy and Incendie. Then, <laughs> those, yes, those exactly. are two really good ones. Yeah. It's it, it's so hard, and I think any Canadian film fan feels the same way because our system was just so corrupt for so long, and in many ways still is. And it's so hard for to make like passion projects or for directors to make risky movies mm -hmm. in this country. But if you're looking at like at like the history of Canadian cinema, there is a guy from way 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 back uh, named Don Owens who made a movie called No One Waved Goodbye. Is a long time ago, probably in the '60s, mm -hmm. but uh, but this is this is a film worth watching. Much like F for Fake, it's super ahead of its time. Shot in Toronto on location with real people who didn't know they were on camera. Like that guy was a real mastermind in terms of old school Canadian filmmakers. And then I think David Cronenberg, you you mm -hmm. gotta give credit to. I mean, like this guy. Other than like maybe James Cameron, who most people don't even think of as a Canadian, mm -hmm. once once he leaves, I mean all, all of James Cameron's big movies were made in the states. But Cronenberg's early films, even some of his later stuff, like this is like mind blowing, groundbreaking work to the point where he's still he's like referenced in Rick and Morty episodes. Like oh, I yeah. think <laughs> that you'd have trouble finding mm -hmm. a Canadian filmmaker who's had more of an impact on the world of art. Or even on even on the the, the cultural world as mm -hmm. a whole than David Cronenberg, it, it, like his movies are not like he more or less pioneered the body horror genre, yeah. and his stuff is still stands up. Like even watching The Fly now, the movie's still hilarious. Like a lot of his stuff is great. He, he hasn't made um, something in a while, but for me, it's 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 I, I I think it's tough to think of somebody who's still alive who is better. So you were talking about like the lack of. Canadian infrastructure and filmmaking. From what I understand, it almost seems like uh, Quebec being its own thing. Like there's a much better infrastructure in Montreal compared to anywhere else in Canada in terms of like filmmaking. Because like Xavier Dolan is able to get like really quality actors and his films it's not even close and there's 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 two or three really really smart reasons for it one is that they have it, it, just way more money without getting into the details of it they have way way more money but two 
they have the protection of their language, which mm -hmm. makes it so that well, I would say one of the one of the major problems that is invisible in Canada is this. It is that in order for you to make a movie with any kind of budget in this country, you need to find a way to sell or to get some kind of investment in the movie from outside of Canada. This is this is going to get so complicated and I'm sure your listeners are going to be like, I don't know what the fuck this guy's talking about. Sure. But the point is any movie when it's getting financed needs money. And so the way that a lot of movies get that money is by putting an actor in the movie that then investors will be like, I know that actor, great, let's make that movie. And they invest in the film. Well, in Canada, we have this kind of double-edged problem where a lot of the money comes from the government, but not all of it. And so we still need to sell parts of our films to the rest of the world in order to get them funded. That means we need actors who the rest of the world can go, I know that guy. I like that person. Let's do it. But the condition on getting the money is that that actor is a Canadian. Yeah. We have weird restrictions here for grants and, and extremely, extremely now. And you can find why there's a good reason for doing that. But the net effect is that a lot of these movies need to cast Canadian no-name actors mm -hmm. outside of outside of Canada in order just to get made, or they need to make major concessions in order to get American stars to come be in them. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Quebec, they're like, if you can't speak French, you can't be in the movie. And so you've just ruled out, you know, 99% of Hollywood. <laughs> so they have their own star system. And so yeah. their movies can get funded based on that star system. Um, and that's just one of the reasons. I mean, Quebec is an amazing, ama it's basically, I'll, I'll tell you how bad it is. When you go to a film festival as a Canadian, like the Quebec films, Quebec is seen as a different country, right? Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll ask you, oh, you're Canadian? Okay, but are you English or French? Because they they treat you differently. Like the Quebec filmmakers are, they're seen as living in a different country at f festivals around the world. Like it's not it's not considered mm -hmm. the same country. What about you, Ralph and Alex, Canadian filmmakers? Oh well, I was going to say, mommy, if that counts as yeah. like a Canadian. Oh yeah, that's one hundred percent Canadian. I think of uh, Scott Pilgrim. Okay, good. <laughs> I th I think of Scott Pilgrim. That's not Canadian at all. Directed that's an American movie. It's just man. set in Kenya. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, in Michael Michael Sarah is Canadian though. Yeah. Oh, yeah Michael Sarah is Canadian. Canadian. Yeah. yeah. No, I that don't think the girl Canadian was, but but uh, but Sarah was. Oh, okay. Mary Elizabeth Winstead. I think she's American. Yeah. Oops. No, she's British. She's British. Winstead. I think she's. I think she's British. Really. I think I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Okay. I thought she was horribly Sounds miscast right. in that film. Horribly miscast. <laughs> I thought that was. I thought they could have gotten a way better Ramona Flowers, and I think it would have saved the movie. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> well, you're not a fan. <laughs> well, I, I, I think she's a fine actress. I thought that was brutal miscasting. Another huge problem with that movie is that it doesn't work as a film. You need. You can't have a movie where the guy gets the girl in Act One, and then the rest of the movie he's defending her. They needed to rewrite. It worked in the comics. They needed to rewrite it so that he doesn't get the girl until he beats up the exes then every, every that movie would have done 200 million dollars at the box office but they were so <laughs> devoted to the original text that they were like oh they need to be he needs to get her they sleep with one another that's like the break into two is he fucks ramona flowers and so everybody in the audience is like okay nice work we saw you like date a t high school student and then sleep with the love of your life why am i still in the theater oh because you have to beat up a bunch of freaks and i need to sit and watch you do it it's ridiculous <laughs> they they needed to keep him like they he, he couldn't touch her she needed to be like you can't be with me until you beat up these weirdos including jason schwartzman and then he beats her up at beats them all up and then she's like ah oh, finally i'm yours and then he has to decide no 
I have self-confidence. I don't need you anymore. And I'm going to go back and date the hot high school student. And then the movie does gangbusters business and, and, and history is rewritten. They just it. fucked it up so badly. Yeah, yeah. Look, I enjoyed it too. Look, I live in Toronto. I was watching it with my tongue out. But I, st- I couldn't believe they made this, this error. Again, just one man's opinion. <laughs> what about you, Alex? Well, I just learned that David Cronenberg is a Canadian. Canadian. That's how, that's how little I know. Like as soon as I hear the phrase Canadian filmmakers, aside from who is joining the podcast at the moment, no one else really pops into my mind. Because they don't make Canadian movies. They're yeah, like exactly. Canadians who make yeah. American movies, really. That's usually how it We're going to change yeah. that, though. We'll, we'll change that. In my, in my lifetime, I, like I, to see I promise. Things. I promise. I think I think all it's going to take is like one young person, uh, and I use that as a relative term, to make a slightly, <laughs> a, a bit of a breakout film, one of us, to mm. make a movie that kind of breaks <laughs> out into the mainstream, and then they'll be able to reshape the entire system. I, 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 I'm, I'm almost positive that's what's going to happen. Hmm. Alex, did, you didn't really have an answer or what? Well, yeah, David Cronenberg and okay. Villeneuve, the same as you pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I love Villeneuve. <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited about his movies. Enemy. Yeah, fucking enemy. I always get anxiety when I know I have to say his name. Villeneuve. Just seeing it it spelled. Dennis Villanueve. (laughs) That's how I would have said it. (laughs) So you got to let go like me. Just say, fuck it. I'll just say it wrong. Who gives a shit? Just commit. Yeah. (laughs) Akira Akukusawa. (laughs) I was going to mention earlier, you finally. uh, we have a guest on the podcast that pronounces PewDiePie like you, Ralph. Yeah. Well, I could look. I I have. I don't want to pronounce it the way he pronounces it because he does it in that high pitched voice. Oh well, you don't have to. Do, you yeah. don't have to do falsetto. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. The. Uh, I guess. I guess that's that question. Do we? Let's. Let's do a couple more. <laughs> that's that question. Uh, we we have to answer this one because it was. Sure one of the most suggested ones because um, mm. of current news but the space dentist asks this dc announced that they are hashtag releasing the snyder <laughs> cut of justice league what yes. are your thoughts on this announcement and how soon can we expect the 10 out of 10 reviews once it's released <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. so we were talking about it before too alex you said they spent 30 million on on it right from, from what i'm aware of they've spent 30 more million to which get is this crazy and it's like not together. coming out for an, yeah. another year or something right it's probably mm-hmm. gonna be well it shows like, you how much they have effect, to do right? on it to to fix it and make it more like what Zack snyder originally wanted because the movie that exists is not that at all are they doing and reshoots or are they just it. adding effects i don't know if they're doing reshoots mm-hmm. they might just be because there's a lot of it that's shot that just, they, they, they didn't they include it in the movie at all so they're just going to like put a bunch of VFX in and redo VFX and redo the coloring to make it, you know. Yeah, so they're paying to undo work they've already done, basically. Yeah. They might do <laughs> more work it. on his mustache, maybe. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, I think I read a, a comment on this saying that it's likely going to be debatably better and debatably worse. Just enough so that <laughs> the online discourse is annoying for the next several years. <laughs> that's, that's what seems the most likely. Just keep it alive. Yeah. It's it's great. <laughs> I'm happy it's finally being I'm made. I'm fascinated by it's the business meme. side yeah. of it because this is a film that already um, was considered <laughs> kind of a huge fuck up financially. <laughs> so going back in again <laughs> is very interesting to me. Does that not? kind of spell that they're confident that they're going to make a little money from this like it's, it's well they know that some people will buy it 
And if let's say it's only yeah. an extra 30 million and it makes more than that, then fuck it. <laughs> it's going on HBO Max from what I know. So they just want to sell that service. Yeah, I guess That's so. all that matters. That's all that matters. Yes. And people yeah, will but buy that, it they couldn't so. do that for 30 million because HBO is not paying a $30 million license fee. Nothing yeah. close for something mm. like this. They need to have another way to make money. I, I would doubt Probably that Blu-ray figure. Sales. Or something, or maybe yeah. like thirty, iTunes. thirty million. It just seems. Yeah, maybe, 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 maybe this is like a lost leader for HBO Max, and it's like, oh, let's do this, and we'll we'll bring people to it. Is that like impossible though? The buyout fee being more than thirty mil? Is it impossible? Of course not. Of yeah. course it's not. Again, as I said, it could be like a loss leader. It could be like spending a whole bunch of money to get an artist to come to your platform for whatever reason. I think that it's one of those suicidal decisions for someone like Snyder because why would you ever do this? I feel the same way about Josh Trank. Like if if he were to be like, oh, that wasn't Fantastic mm -hmm. Four wasn't supposed to be that way, mm -hmm. and then the studio says, okay, you can you do whatever you want. Do anything you want. We'll pay for it. How does Snyder then back away from the criticism of the film once it comes out? Like he kind of had his cake and got to eat it too yeah. with the reception of the film where he could say, ah, oh, that's not my movie. I, 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 that's not the way it was supposed to be, but I still got paid. And people can now decide that, oh, he got robbed. He's still an artist yeah. and he gets to keep his credibility. Whereas now – it's like, this had better be a fucking masterpiece, Zach. <laughs> Otherwise, you're yeah. going to be the hack everybody says you are. I'm, I'm hoping it's, it's like worse. It's disowning it. I'm hoping it's like 10 times <laughs> worse. <laughs> well, fans of, uh, you know, his version of it are burning their copies of Justice League. They've labeled it like Joss League. And there's like videos of them burning it and destroying it. Oh, that's so funny. So, yeah, it's like he's disowning this movie and creating this new one. Like, this one will be much better. But it better live up to that hype. <laughs> like you said yeah i don't know surely this will provide definitive proof on what was reshot and what isn't like mm -hmm. from the original so you'll just be able mm -hmm. to see down the line exactly what <clears throat> what was so messed up about the original in comparison yeah, yeah i'm <laughs> i don't know i still haven't seen the original i was thinking of doing like a commentary <laughs> on it or something just for my first watch because i know it's supposed it. to be like a disaster I know you love it, Ralph. <laughs> yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> it's, whenever I think of that movie, all I think of is the mustache. Because that's just so hilarious to me. <laughs> Digitally so editing out the oh, mustache. Yeah. Was it the same movie? Is that the Justice one where League. Superman has his mustache? Yeah. But mm -hmm. the, Oh! Because they had to do oh, like reshoots God. and he was he needed the mustache for No, I know the role. story. I, yeah. I know the story. I, 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 I walked out after, after that opening camcorder scene. Uh, like a lot of these <laughs> movies, and like not to, not to seem like a, a snobby prick but a lot of them i get so interested in and then i'll go and i find with every single one of the dc movies just about i'll walk out after like five minutes because i'm just like this is so ridiculous it's like they don't get the basics and you keep right. coming back they can't even oh, oh i always come back the next one <laughs> Oh, but I, I I refund them. I refund them at the at the at the top of the Scotiabank <laughs> Theater as I walk out. So long as you leave, leave, so long as you leave within fifteen minutes, they can't take your money, um, or or I sneak in. But um, but I feel so bad for for the, for DC fans. So bad for DC fans. Yeah. Not that the Marvel movies are necessarily masterpieces, but they have coherence. Um, yeah. That, uh, that is yeah. yeah that has been a, that has been such a boon. They have a plan somewhat. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, they do. And and the characters have psychology that resembles human psychology <laughs> as opposed to like I remember watching Ben Affleck as Batman and I was like, what? What guy? Like you're not even a real person. None of you are real people. The only person that I remember in that Wonder Woman movie, the, 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 the Captain Kirk, I was like, okay, this guy seems like a real guy. Everybody mm-hmm. else is like they just don't resemble the human psychology that I have ever seen in real life. It's like the imaginations of some, well, I suppose Zack Snyder, whoever's writing these things, they just can't seem to get that right. It's like film school writing. They're actually really unlikable, a lot of them. Like Superman well, is a fucking dick and he's depressed and he's like mm-hmm. <laughs> throwing people through buildings. <laughs> it's crazy the shit he's doing. And it's not driven by psychology, which is like the cardinal sin. If you're going to have Batman or Superman throw somebody like, a, like across the planet, the reason that audiences are like, whoa, I can't believe he did that is because we know why they were pissed right yeah. it's why it's why iron man being such a like a pompous full of himself narcissist works so well because we understand why he then devotes himself to his work while he'll argue with captain america all this kind of stupid shit which i think only half works anyway but at least we can get behind the psychology of it because even though we aren't billionaire tech geniuses who could build the iron man suit we do feel the same emotions as this guy mm-hmm. and dc is just not getting that right with any of their characters and i just don't understand it apart from aquaman <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> so you mentioned the uh scotia bank theater in toronto completely yes, yes. unrelated to coronavirus that's like closing down for good right they sold it yeah so it's becoming it was condos, announced, right? i think yep they're turning it into a massive massive condo structure which some would say it's about time because that land is so insanely valuable but I don't know what the film festival is going That's to what do. I was the Toronto thinking. Film Festival. So many of the screens are at that theater. All of them. They rent the theater for you know two weeks, yeah, and that so was the sad. whole reason why why Tiff Bell Lightbox moved to. Well, one of the reasons why it moved to that location. Again, if you're not from Toronto, you don't care. But that is the movie where they shot Scott Pilgrim. It's the movie where where we shot many episodes of Nirvana, the band, the show. Yeah, it's like the best. It's it's just it's just been there forever, and I, I, it's so sad that it's going. Yeah. Very unfortunate. Yeah, I, I, I have no idea what the festival is going to do. Well, yeah, I mean, if they, to... if they open, at least they got a year and a half to figure it out. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, let's do the silly one from uh, Benna Bramowitz eighteen, who says, "Who would you put on the Mount Rushmore of actors?" <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I already mentioned Joaquin and Tilda. Those are two of my favorite. Put, sure. Jesus Christ. You put them both this on is them? like so so recent. You're going to put Tilda <laughs> yeah, Swinton so on the Mount Tilda. Rushmore of actors. Look, I love her too, but my God, like what? Well, you want like Marlon Brando? For 20 years. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not judging Marlon you. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. I think Tilda's cool. <laughs> She's great. She like learned Russian and Italian so she could speak Russian in an Italian accent for I Am Love. Like, like, she transforms into every character I see her play. Yeah. I, I love her a lot. And I don't feel any shame by in loving her so much just because she's a more recent actor. No, you shouldn't. I was being incredibly rude. Um, That's fine. And in fact, even even as you talked about her, I thought about her in uh, Doctor Strange. And I, I honestly think she's incredible in it. I'm like, oh, wow. I completely buy you. You're wicked. What about you then? Who who should you be? <laughs> who, who would you want on the Mount it's, Rushmore? Dustin Hoffman, mm-hmm. I think he's... Uh, it would be it would be the first big face with um with with Mike Nichols right beside him saying now what can we do about that nose, um, <laughs> and 
as I said, I love Kate Winslet, but that is basically my version of Tilda Swinton. I think her, like every gesture that she does, I'm like, oh, I love, like, I don't think she can make a mistake. See, there's a lot of older generation actors that I really respect. And sometimes I feel like their decline in performances over the years might cloud my judgment in, 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 in terms of like whether or not I would want them to be included on the uh, Mount Rushmore. So I think of like, you know, like if it's like Robert De Niro or like Jack Nicholson or something like there are fantastic performances from them. But then over time, there's like some not so great ones. But when I think of Tilda Swinton, I don't know if I've seen a movie where she wasn't great in it. And maybe that's just due to her not like falling, <laughs> falling off the, the map in terms of her talent, I guess. But like, and she's still so young, like by, by actress standards. Like, she, oh yeah, oh, oh let's see. She's got up her age right now. I'm willing to bet she's in her early forties. I don't think so. Let's see. She's fifty nine years old. She's almost sixty. Holy yeah. shit! Oh Jesus Christ! Yeah, <laughs> my bad. Hey, well, hey, Tilda, you look good. Tilda, if you listen to this, you had me fooled. I thought I thought, I thought you were like yeah, she loves forty two. She turns sixty it. in November. It's her favorite yeah. podcast. Hey, good for her. Okay, but uh, like another two, like to put up there is is tough. I'm not going to force you to pick four. <laughs> yeah, I would put Al Pacino on there because I think he's hilarious. I never think he's bad, even even his bad stuff. Even in like any given Sunday, I'm laughing at everything he does. Mm-hmm. I think he's a genius. <laughs> I was just rewatching Glen Gary, Glen Ross, where he says, "Go buy me a pack of jam. I'll show you how to chew it." And he's just <laughs> like he can't miss. The guy's so fucking funny, um, and I don't think he knows how funny he is, which. Which is another one of his gifts. Even in his crap, even like Devil's Advocate, doesn't matter. He's just so like mesmerizingly good. He's one of those guys that I saw and I wanted to be. And then maybe this is a cheap answer and obviously very personal, but like basically every single dramatic role of Robin Williams, including the genie. Oh yeah, I was like, mm-hmm. the, yeah, he, I, I think Robin he Williams. was. He was like a magician. And like, even, like from Mrs. Doubtfire to like even Hook, which I just recently rewatched. It's like. Which also has Dustin Hoffman. Hey, what am I saying? These these guys are the best. Um, he just brings so much humanity, and he always seems so pathetic. He's so good at seeming pathetic. And again, mm-hmm. it's a po- it's a popular answer because yeah, my God, he's like a superstar, and everybody loves him. But I think he's one of these guys who's like not very good looking. He's not in great shape, and he's not making you feel like oh, I want to be him. But you understand every thought that he has and you you follow his eyes and when he feels pain or when he feels joy, you really do feel it too. And they're just like, who's doing that these days? Like Philip Seymour Hoffman could do that. Oh, I, love I think Matt Damon Philip. sometime can do it. But like modern actors working now, they I feel like for the most part, they're so afraid to be weak. They're so afraid to look weak. And they're mm. so afraid to look like truly humbled and pathetic. Whereas Robin Williams just... Look, he's dressed up as an old Scottish lady for half a movie, and you're still you're still behind him. That's a great answer. I would probably add Neil Breen to my Rushmore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of these actors think it's against the, their image to be weak or be perceived as weak in movies. Like they, mm. their career would be ruined if they were to be yeah. a weaker role or maybe a flawed character. Some of them have uh-huh. contracts like that where their mm-hmm. character uh-huh. has to be portrayed in like a positive light. Yeah, they can only be in like action movies where they're the lead and like a badass or yeah. something. They can't lose a fight. It's like that that uh, uh-huh. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood story, right? Like they yeah. they they won't let audiences view them negatively. Yeah, Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. 
throwing himself into 12 years a slave being like the, the one good white guy <laughs> Brad Pitt has a lot of but those. I gotta be the same like World War Z is literally like one of those movies or yeah. like Ad Astra like it's a vehicle for Brad Pitt and there's like this sci-fi thing around it that's fine it's like yeah. you know it's like other movies um mm-hmm. Francis McDormand I think deserve deserves to be like yeah. up there in terms of like giving really good performances and not really having many missteps I can't think of anything I don't like her in Mm-hmm. Like Fargo was amazing and Three Billboards. Yeah. Really amazing underrated performance by her that a lot, a lot of people talk about is as the kind of wife in the movie Wonder Boys, where she plays the wife of the dean of a college. She's incredible. She's mm. so romantic. And it's one of the few movies where you'll see old people in a like will they, won't they uh, romance that is totally credible. It's between her and Michael Douglas. It's an amazing, amazing character. Okay. Hmm. My four are simple. We already mentioned Seymour Hoffman, of course. I put him on the end. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle, I'd have uh, Kevin Hart and The Rock. <laughs> Jared Leto's Joker at the end. Uh, <laughs> so not even the actor of Jared. So like on Mount Rushmore, there's a tattoo thing <laughs> damaged, right? It's yeah, like with chiseled the damage in. Over yeah. his forehead. Oh my God. <laughs> That'd be perfect. That's Somebody great. make this. <laughs> Petition the government. It's funny. <laughs> Talking about great actors, it is one of those things where it's like, once Jared Leto is dead, I imagine his name is never uttered by anybody ever. He's one of these guys who thinks that he's such a genius and so talented, yet will be forgotten in the blink of an eye. He will vanish like mist. It's like he's only around because he seems to draw a certain kind of audience. Mm-hmm. Oh, just gone. This poor bastard. <laughs> he could have been Joker in the Joker movie. Yeah. yeah too bad. Oh, yeah. That, that would have been... A very different film. <laughs> it would have been a career-defining thing for him. I'm surprised nobody put Tom Cruise up there, who, again, for all the crap that he takes, hmm. I, I, I wouldn't... Sure. If you're talking about... Because Mount Rushmore is such an American icon. You'd <laughs> yeah. think right, that right. if yeah. America were to make the Mount Rushmore of actors, I bet you Tom Cruise would be number one. Because everyone says he's not like an amazing actor. He's a movie star. Like, he's a movie star. watch it for his it would personality. Be like, it would be Bruce Willis, Tom Cruise... Sure. Um, maybe, I even think Bruce Willis could be a better actor than I Tom think Brad Cruise. Pitt would be on there in that logic. Yeah, Brad Pitt, and then one more. Like, who who does America pick? It have Chuck to be the guys. Rock. The Rock. Maybe yeah. the Rock. <laughs> it may. That, I, I think that's sincere. I think actually it may yeah, be genuinely. the Rock. Maybe no. That's He's crazy. like the modern day. I, I would visit it if they built it. I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think we got time for uh, one more question. That's fine. Okay. Let's end on this one from. Uh, Desire Lil Beer. Sorry, Bear. Do you guys believe the moon landing was real? <laughs> That's a good question <laughs> for this. <laughs> Take it away, Matt. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, my answer is obvious. Like I spent like, you know, a year of my life more or less researching this. And it's so funny. When I began making that movie, I thought, oh, maybe I didn't think the moon landing was fake, but I thought maybe there's a chance that it was, and I'm going to figure that out over the course of Mm -hmm. making this movie. And then I was confronted with this crazy fact that made me think, well, I know 100% the moon landing was not faked, and I can't think my way out of it. And I'll tell it to you right now. It's a very simple fact, okay? And it's that in 1969, first of all, the only way to have actually faked the moon landing is to shoot slow motion. If you've seen Operation Avalanche, we talk Mm -hmm. about this a little bit, but here's what we don't talk about, okay? To shoot slow motion, you had to shoot film. You'd have to overcrank the camera. But you could not do that with this type of moon landing faking because... The original moon landing broadcast was like an uninterrupted shot that went on for 
I think an hour and a half. Mm. So not only is there no film magazine big enough to do that, even if you were to construct one that could do it, like one little scratch or hair or anything on the film would completely give you away and they would have found it by now, which means that they would have needed to have shot video and like slow motion video technology didn't even really exist until like 10 years later. Mm -hmm. And the storage capability of storing that long of a single video take was they were like on big magnetic disks. It would be almost like the size of the planet to store that much data. Like it just, those two simple facts make it technically impossible. Um, although the rest of it, like the moon is just a surface, you know, it has light from the sun. Like there's lots of things you can, you could easily fake, but the problem is the storage and you just couldn't do it. And I spent a lot of time at NASA, mm, obviously talking about with real people, like working there about it, talking with conspiracy theorists over the course of a year, as I went to film festivals mm -hmm. with the film, everybody telling me their, their opinion and nobody was able to get off of this one fact. So Sad as it is, because <laughs> I love the idea that it was a conspiracy. It's way more fun, obviously, because yeah. there's a story connected to it. And like all conspiracy pe uh, theories, people want to believe that there was a story and good guys and bad guys associated with the construction of it, because that's the way the human brain works. In this case, it was just unbelievably boring hard work by scientists. Okay. And they, they bored even themselves. So here's what I believe. I believe... <laughs> <laughs> I believe that the government told Stanley Kubrick to fake the moon landing, but because he was so obsessed with getting it realistic, he actually went to the moon to film on location <laughs> for realism. <laughs> yeah, that's what, uh, that's what this one guy basically said after he'd more or less explained all the technology that it would have taken to fake it. At the end, he was like, so you could do all that or... You could just go to the moon and roll the cameras. Yeah. <laughs> and that would basically that exact same answer. I think it's clearly fake. <laughs> I didn't know Matt was in <laughs> on this whole thing. I thought he was cool. Who's <laughs> paying oh, you? Yeah. CIA. 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 <laughs> Alex? Oh, do I really have to answer? I mean, you I chose know. the question. Uh, you gotta, it's the question for everybody. <laughs> yeah, because uh, yes, um, I believe the moon landing was real. <laughs> nice okay. sick cool <laughs> man alright yeah, okay alright um, I guess that's it for questions uh, so closing off the podcast uh, I believe we have a recommendation I believe it's Alex's turn to recommend uh, recommend a movie for the next episode take it away yes um, so well this is my catch up choice because it's all been messed up because of guests and all this but I've, I've got it written down yeah yeah no i was trusting you to get it right um i'm recommending sexy beast from nice. the year 2000 oh, nice. I it. Jonathan. oh okay have you seen that yeah. i just watched it twice like the other week okay cool isn't it oh, wicked really? when, he, when he pisses on the seat <laughs> well because jonathan glazer is like yeah i, I love under the skin and i'd never seen sexy beast and yeah it, well we'll talk about it okay cool but, yeah that's a great film awesome yeah, I'm excited to see it too. I I've only ever seen mm -hmm. Under the Skin from him, so yeah, I'm in the same position. Okay, great. Um, if you don't want to be spoiled for Sexy Beast, uh, watch it before the next <laughs> episode comes out. These these episodes come out every two weeks. If you want to support the show, uh, sardonicast.com. Sign up for premium. It's two dollars a month, and you get these episodes early. Also, Patreon.com/slash/sardonicast. Also, we got merch. Link in the description. And uh, is there anything you want to plug, Matt? 
Any? Uh... Do I? Hell no! Come on! No, no I'm not. I mean, you don't really have like um, social media stuff, but <laughs> no, I <laughs> don't. But I movies, will say, I you know. <laughs> Sure. You know what? Go find Nirvana the Band the show and watch it. Yeah. If you're in Canada, you can watch it on CBC Gem. But uh, oh, yeah. it's also easy to find uh, on the internet in all kinds of. Uh, it's free in the UK. Yeah, it's on Channel Four on the BBC. Yeah, yeah. In the yeah, UK and in Australia, I think it's on SBS. And uh, otherwise, it's very easy to find just on the internet randomly. Awesome. Thank you awesome. so much for joining. <laughs> that was a really interesting conversation. And thanks for recommending the movie. It was, it was so great to be here. Awesome. Mm. Thank you for coming on. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.